Well, hi, everyone. I want to thank you for joining us today for our online service. This has been kind of a rough week as we learned that someone else connected to our church was tested positive for COVID-19, and then there might be one other person. As you've probably heard, the numbers uh, are, are skyrocketing at a very alarming rate and is of great concern to us. I want to ask you to keep these two individuals, uh, a, a man and a woman, in your prayers. Uh, they are young. They're not children, but they're young. And I want to ask you to keep them in your prayers. Also, pray for their family members and those that have been around them that they will not become infected. You know, the burgeoning, burgeoning, numbers, uh, the, the burgeoning number of cases is why we haven't moved toward reopening the church uh, and we're not going to do that until these numbers start to come down uh, dramatically. And so we're going to continue to do church online, and, uh, and we're going to do that for the foreseeable future, including our Vacation Bible School, which is coming up next month. Uh, I understand that nearly 300 children have already signed up. Their parents have signed up for them. It's called VBS. And uh, here's a photo of last year's VBS. Uh, and because this year's VBS is going to be online... There's going to be no limit to the number of kids who can be part of this. And so I want to encourage you to get the word out. Get the word out. Go to our website, southbaycommunitychurch.com. I mean, even if you're on the other side of the country, I want to encourage you to sign up because I believe the VBS is going to take place. We'll have a session in the morning and one in the evening so we can catch folks at different times. Uh, and then after you sign up, send the link to some of the friends that you have who, may, who might have children. Uh, and they're going to absolutely love it, all right? So, and finally, let me just say this. These are um, very difficult and certain times that we're living in, and uh, I can't urge you enough to stay close to God. Stay close to God. Keep tuning in uh, to our services and the other things that we provide for you. We are working hard every single day to provide content for you that will challenge you, in your faith to help you keep growing in your relationship with Christ. This is not the time to begin slacking off spiritually. This is not the time to do that. Of course, there's no good time to do that. And of course, I want to encourage you to share your faith with others because having a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing you could be doing at a time like this. All right, so uh, I want to begin our time with a word of prayer. Let's pray for these two individuals. Uh, you might know of others uh, who are, are sick or been tested. Pray for them, and then uh, we'll unpack God's Word today. All right? So let's pray together. Well, Father, it is good to come together today for church. And though we, though we still cannot meet together, there is, there's so much comfort and solace in just our being able to meet in this way uh, and for us to be able to bring uh, the Word of God to people wherever they're at. And fathers, we do that. You know, my heart is just heavy for, for the for the folks, um, some in our church who are struggling, who have been diagnosed with uh, the coronavirus. And father, you know who they are. Uh, you know, some of them are still being tested. I ask God, we beg you, Lord, to bring healing to these individuals. Father, touch them from head to toe. Father, if they've got a fever, reduce that fever. Let the fever break. We pray that you would allow them to rebound quickly. We pray that you would boost their immune systems. We pray that not only will you heal them physically, but we ask you to touch their minds because so much of this 
is, is a battle of, uh, of the mind. It is a, it is a mental uh, stressor, God. It's an anxiety producer uh, to be sick with this. And so I ask, God, that you would bring these individuals a sense of peace. Do that for their family members, God, as they worry uh, over the health of their loved ones. And I pray, Father, for all those who are close to, to these individuals, Father, that you would protect them and keep them healthy and safe from, from catching this thing as well. So, God, we are, we are desperate for you to touch the lives of these individuals. You know who they are. We, we ask you to touch them. And, Father, today, as we open up your word, I pray, Father, that you would, again, draw us closer to you. Help us to see things the way that you see them and help us to have the mind of Christ. So I ask that you use this vessel. I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. And I ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, so I want to begin by asking you a question, all right? And the question is this, are you afraid of the dark? All right, are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom if that's what you need to do? How many of you wake up and you got to go to the bathroom, but you're afraid of the dark and so you just hold it and so you, you are laying in bed uncomfortable all night, not able to sleep because you don't want to get up to go to the bathroom and yet you got to go to the bathroom and it makes you miserable. If you're afraid of the dark, I want you to raise your hand, all right? Raise your hand. I want to see your hands, and I want to know who's afraid of the dark. Ah, that's what I thought. Pastor Caleb, Pastor Dave, Pastor Greg, Pastor Dan, Pastor James, you're all afraid of the dark, right? Uh, it really is okay to admit that you're afraid of the dark. In fact, my, prob- my wife has no problem admitting that I'm afraid of the dark. According to Dr. John Mayer, he said it is very common for Americans, adult Americans, to uh, be afraid of the dark. In fact, he estimates that 11% of our population, which would be millions and millions of people, 11% of Americans are afraid of the dark. That may not seem that high to you, but, but in the UK, those numbers are, are off the charts. In the UK, in the United Kingdom, a recent poll revealed that 64% of Brits are afraid of the dark. And the reason why people are afraid of the dark, according to psychologists named Alicia Clark, is because darkness impairs our vision, quite literally, and this is inherently uncomfortable. We aren't afraid so much of the dark as we are afraid of what is in the dark that we can't see. That's what she says, and she's probably right. It's not so much that we're afraid of the dark as we are afraid of what might be lurking in the dark that scares us, all right? One creature that is not afraid of the dark, is the lion. The lion's eyesight is no better than ours during the day, but at night, it can see eight times better than we can. And it can see better than we can at night for two reasons. First, because it has a reflective coating right behind its retina, a reflective coating that helps it to see better at night. And at night, when light enters into the lion's eyes, even moonlight or starlight, it bounces off that reflective coating, making the eyes appear to glow like this photo right here. This is the actual lion. The lion is also assisted by one other feature, which helps it to see in the dark, right? And and I want to know if you have an idea what this feature is. So I'm going to show you three photos of three lions. And I want you to look carefully at their eyes and see if you can figure out what the features are that helps a lion to see at night. All right, here's the first photo. All right, take a look at the eyes. All right, here's the second photo. 
This is, a, this is a lioness, a female. Look at her eyes. And then here's the third photo. This is another male. Do you notice, did you notice what all three have in common around their eyes? Did you notice the feature? All lions have a patch of white fur right under their eyes. And the white fur helps to reflect light into their eyes so that the lion can see in the dark. It's absolutely amazing. I bet you never noticed that before, but when you think about it, God is such an ingenious creator to give the lions a patch of white to help them see in the dark. And so a lion can amble uh, into the grasslands and savannas of Africa on a moonless night, and they can see what no other creature can see. Imagine if we had that ability to see uh, in the dark and have the eyes of a lion. Well, today we're launching a brand new series called The Eye of a Lion. The Eye of a Lion. And over the next month or so, we want to help you to begin to see things through the spiritual eyes of a lion. So whenever you come upon dark times in your life, you won't be afraid. And you'll be able to see what others may not be able to see. You'll see God at work. So I want you to grab a Bible Open up to 2 Kings chapter 25, 2 Kings 25, grab something to write with and something to write on. You can open up our South Bay Community Church app, and if you don't have it, go to the Play Store, you can do it right now and download it, and you have it, and we have notes there for you, and, you can, and we've got all the verses there as well. Last November, a group of us uh, went to Israel for the very first time, and uh, before we headed home, we made uh, a couple of final stops, and one of those stops was at the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem is Israel's uh, official memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. And uh, after the Western Wall, Yad Vashem is the second most visited tourist site in all of Israel. The last exhibit in Yad Vashem is the Hall of the names, the Hall of Names. And it looks like this when you first walk into it. At the base of this cone-shaped structure are hundreds of books, like you can see here, containing the names of more than 4 million Jews who were murdered during the Holocaust. And then when you walk into the cone, the display, there's a display in the cone. It rises about three stories it is this, there's a display there of the photographs of 600 Holocaust victims. It was an absolutely chilling sight. Those were terrifying and dark days for the Jews. Hitler's murderous rampage went on for four years. Imagine surviving that, living through that. You see, darkness isn't just a physical characteristic. It is also a metaphor for evil. It is a metaphor for that which is ominous and foreboding and gloomy. Take a look at this. 586. If you've been around here for any length of time, you would be familiar with these three digits, 586. 586 is not a new area code for Los Angeles. 586 uh, aren't this week's winning numbers for the pick three lotto. 586 B.C. was the year that the Babylonian Empire destroyed the city of Jerusalem where the Yad Vashem Museum is located today. 
Not only did the Babylonians uh, destroy the city of Jerusalem, but they also obliterated the temple of God, which was the focal point of their city. And here's what I want you to know about the destruction of the, Jeru- of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 2 Kings 25, verse 1. Let me read it to you. It says, And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the, of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. All right, so stop right there. First of all, notice the word his. And in the ninth year of his reign, the, the word his, the pronoun his, his refers to King Zedekiah, who was the king of Judah. And according to this verse, nine years, ten months, and ten days into Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Babylon is where Iraq is located today, he came up against Jerusalem, completely surrounded the city, built siege works around it, or a siege wall, that's what it means basically, a siege wall around it, so that no one could enter the city or exit the city. And Jerusalemites were trapped inside their own city. The ninth year, tenth month, and tenth day of Zedekiah's reign uh, happens to be the month of January in the year 588 B.C. 588 B.C. Right out of the gate, right out of the gate, the destruction of Jerusalem began with the siege of Jerusalem. It began with the siege in January 588 B.C. Now, I want you to know that these events are a matter of historical record. You can go to any history book and you'll read all about it. It's not only, you know, detailed in the scriptures, but in any history book, any encyclopedia, even publications like the National Geographic have written extensively about 586 B.C. and the destruction of Jerusalem. The point is, the siege was the beginning of a very dark time for Israel. Almost immediately, the city suffered a food shortage because the siege prevented food from going into the city. And we got a hint of what that might be like uh, right when the lockdown began, uh, when food flew off the shelves in all the supermarkets. Everyone ran in there and could grab whatever they could, and uh, they would get out of there with that. I remember going to Trader Joe's very early on, and the shelves, I walked in, the shelves were completely empty. The frozen cases, were food cases were empty. My favorite maple granola cereal was gone. The mochi ice cream was gone, and I wondered what we were going to eat. The only thing that they had left were some flowers, and I know we weren't going to eat that. But here's what happened. Here's what happened in 2 Kings 25 and verse 2. It says, So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. Okay, let me explain what's going on here. According to this passage, the siege, which began in January of 588 B.C., lasted until the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah's reign. That would have been 
July 586 B.C., July 586 B.C., which means the siege of Jerusalem lasted for two and a half years. It lasted for two and a half years. It was a nightmare for two two and a half years. And the siege ended, it ended, according to verse 4, when the city was breached and the Babylonians marched into the city. So their strategy was to weaken the city. And then after two and a half years of the siege, then they marched in the city. They swarmed the city, overtook the city, and conquered it. And you know what happened when they entered the city? Verse 4 says that all the men of war fled by night. The soldiers who were there to defend the city ran for their lives. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that the king, that the king, King Zedekiah, was captured. And they gouged out his eyes. And they murdered his sons right before him. And then they took him hostage to Babylon. And then, right after that, one of Nebuchadnezzar's top lieutenants came in, torched the entire city. 2 Kings 25 verse 9 says, And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And it might have looked like this. Not only did they burn down every house in the city, they burned down the temple of God, the very temple that King Solomon built centuries before, the very temple that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the very temple where the Jews would come every year to celebrate the Passover. You can only imagine the city was gripped in fear. Anxiety levels were off the charts. We can only imagine how devastating it must have been for the Jews to watch as their temple was reduced to an ash heap. And to give you a sense of what that might have been like, imagine if someone came, an arsonist came and burned down our church. Now, we know that the church is not a building, church is people. But nevertheless, we would be devastated if someone came and burned down the very place that we have come to call home. And just when the Jews thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. Because those who survived the onslaught were then captured and taken hostage to Babylon. And they were there for many years. Someone who was an eyewitness to these horrific events was the prophet Jeremiah. He saw it all with his very own eyes. And it was because of what he saw that he wrote the book of Lamentations. So turn to Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, which would be to the right of 2 Kings 25. It follows the book of Jeremiah. It would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jews. And in Hebrew, the book is titled Ekah. Ekah. And Ekah, it's not called called Lamentations, it's called Ekah. And and Ekah means how. It means how. Ekah was an expression of dismay. It was a cry of lament, as as in, how can this happen? How did this happen? It was only later that Jewish rabbis began to refer to Ekah as lamentations because that's how they viewed the book, that the book was a lament. It was a mournful cry because of what happened to the Jews when their city and their temple was destroyed. The book of Lamentations is... 154 verses long. It's broken up into five chapters. Let me give you a jet tour through the book. Five chapters. I'm going to give you some verses out of each of the five chapters just to give you a sample 
of what Jeremiah lamented. And stick with me because I'm going someplace with this, all right? Lamentations 1, verse 1 and verse 4. Jeremiah wrote, How deserted lies a city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. My eyes are spent, Jeremiah wrote. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And finally, chapter 5, our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. That's a quick jet tour, the book of Lamentations. But in it, in this writing, Jeremiah describes a scene of utter devastation. What was once a thriving and vibrant city was now reduced to nothing. It was totally leveled. Infants and babies fainted in the street. There was nothing to eat so that mothers would boil and cannibalize their own young Lamentations 3 and 4, 3 verse 4 seems to suggest that even Jeremiah was slowly starving to death. And so he was swallowed up in anguish as people all around him died. He was overcome with bitterness and tribulation. All joy had escaped him. He was weary to the bone and he wept so much, this passage says, that there weren't any more tears to weep. And I think that chapter 3, verse 6 summed it up best when he said, He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Darkness hovered over the land like death. Ever feel like that? Sometimes it feels like that even today. Like there's this thick blanket of darkness covering our land. Well, fortunately, Jeremiah had the spiritual eyes of a lion because nestled right in the middle of these five chapters, right in the middle in chapter 3 is this pearl, is this gem. Take a look at it. Lamentations 3, verse 21 through 23. Jeremiah wrote, in the midst of all this calamity and destruction and devastation, he wrote, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that good? You know, a few years ago, someone in our church gave me one of the best Christmas presents I have ever received. It's called the tile. It looks like this, but I have one right here. Uh, the tile, uh, I think the person, the reason why this person gave me the tile is because she knew that I was a very, I'm a very forgetful person and I often forget where I put my keys. But here's how it works. You attach the tile to your keychain like this and then you go to your phone and you download the app. I'm going to put my keys down for a second. You download the app. And so when you can't find your keys, you open up the app. I'm going to see if I can do that right now. You open up the app and you press the find button. And it, and it gives off a signal so you can find your keys. It is the coolest thing. All right. Let me see if I can get this to stop. Okay. That's enough. All right. Good. All right. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but what if you can't find your phone, right? If you can't find your phone, then you can't find your keys. Well, here's the cool thing about that. If you can find your keys, then what you do is you, even if your phone is on vibrate mode or silent mode, if you press the tile twice, your phone will ring. But let me do this, try that. There it goes. Okay, so let me see if I can turn that off. Okay. Now, isn't, that, isn't this the best gift I've ever received, right? So now I... You can always find my phone and I can always find my keys. The problem is, if you can't find your keys and your phone, then you're in big trouble, right? Because then you can't find either. So don't, moral of the story is don't lose either of them. You can lose one or the other, but don't lose them both. I love this story because it is a reminder of what God is saying here, what Jeremiah is saying here. When we come to this gem of a passage, Lamentations 3, 21, the first thing that Jeremiah said was, but this I call to mind. But this I call to mind, meaning Jeremiah remembered God. But this I call to mind. He didn't forget like I forget. He didn't forget God like I forget my keys or I forget where I put my phone. He remembered God. He remembered who God is. He remembered who God, what God does. He remembered what God is like. And this passage is a reminder that this is something we all need to do. We need to remember God. We need to remember God in these dark times, in these evil days. And the first thing that Jeremiah remembered about God was that God had a steadfast love. Take a look at verse 22 again. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You can stop right there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Circle steadfast love. In Hebrew, this is the word Hesed, Hesed. In the Old Testament, it's used 250 times, and it refers to a loyal love, a devoted love. It's possible that when Jeremiah wrote this, he had in mind the promises that God gave and made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, centuries before, when he told Abraham that God would bless his people, the Jews, and that he would give them a land, he would make them a great nation. And now it seems that all of that, that God took all of that back because now the city was no more and the temple was gone and they were stripped from their land. But don't forget, Jeremiah had the eyes of a lion so he could see even in the darkness. And he remembered that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He remembered that God's love never stops. 
He remembered that God's love never stops no matter what happens to their children, no matter how bad things get, and that one day all the promises that God made to Abraham would come true. And that's true even today. No matter how dark your world is, no matter what it is that you're going through, God's steadfast love for you never ceases. Maybe you have the virus. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you're in hospice. Maybe you're old. Maybe you're a teenager. God's steadfast love for you never ceases. Maybe you're unemployed. Maybe your retirement account was wiped out recently by the stock market plunge. Maybe you're going through divorce or maybe your parents are getting a divorce. Maybe you're full of anxiety and and fear because of all the things that are happening right now. Maybe you sinned against God. God never stops loving you. I love the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. He said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including the coronavirus, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God's love never stops. So in times, so right, I want you to write this one down. In times of darkness, you need to remember, you need to remember that God never stops loving you. He never stops loving me. You know, many years ago, one Sunday morning, I got up to to preach, give a message. We were uh, meeting at a different place at the time, another place down on 190th Street. It was a much smaller facility than what we have here today. And uh, I don't know what it was, but halfway through my message, all of a sudden my heart started beating really fast. It was beating so fast, I think it was up to about 150, 160 beats a minute, uh, that I, could, I felt like it was going to burst out of my chest um, finally got done as quickly as I could. I went home. I laid down thinking if I just laid down, if I rested, um, that it would go away, but it didn't. And so I went to the ER. I told them I have a heart thing, and they said they took me in right away. And uh, within a matter of minutes, I was completely, I was on the gurney, completely surrounded by all these doctors and nurses, and they were making a big deal out of what was going on. And they told me that my heart was beating pretty fast, and that the only way to stop it was to give me a heart-stopping medication. They said they were going to inject me with something to stop my heart uh, for just a brief second. And they said it was going to be the weirdest sensation, and no kidding. So they counted down, three, two, one, and they injected this thing, and all of a sudden my heart stopped, and it was just the weirdest sensation. And then a second later, it started beating again, and it started beating normal. It was the weirdest thing. It happened two more times after that. And then each time I had to go to the ER to get that medication to get my heart back to um, a regular rhythm. Eventually, I had a procedure called the catheter ablation, and uh, they were able to fix the problem. It's a misfiring of an electrical system, and I haven't had an episode since. But um, the only time uh, it ever happens, my heart beats fast, is when I see my wife. That always makes my heart beat faster. But, but after surgery, my, uh, my doctor prescribed a beta blocker. He prescribed the beta blocker to control my blood pressure. Beta blockers work by blocking the effects of adrenaline. Adrenaline, adrenaline. So, so uh, it causes. So the beta blocker causes my heart to beat slower, and then that lowers the blood pressure. Okay, it blocks adrenaline. Right, and I take it. I still take it today. I take it every single day. You may not be aware, but there's such a thing as a mercy blocker. A mercy blocker. Mercy blockers, mercy blockers are those things that keep us from showing mercy or being merciful. 
to others. Selfishness is a mercy blocker. When it's all about me, myself, and I, I don't think about anybody else. It blocks me from being merciful. Stress, busyness might be another form of mercy blockers because I'm too busy to show compassion and mercy to somebody else or I'm too stressed out. Laziness might be another mercy blocker. I'm too lazy. I'm too indifferent. I don't really care about anybody else, so it's a mercy blocker. Aloofness or this elitist attitude, like I'm better than everybody else, is a mercy blocker. keeps me from showing mercy and compassion to other people. These are just a few things that block us from showing mercy. Well, at the end of Lamentations 3.22 and at the beginning of verse 23, Jeremiah wanted us to remember that God never stops showing us mercy. God is not hindered by mercy blockers. Take a look at Lamentations 3. I'll just read it from the top, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You can stop there. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Pastor John MacArthur described or defined mercy this way. He said, mercy goes beyond compassion. It goes beyond sympathy. It means sympathy and compassion in action toward anyone in need. Mercy is seeing a man without food and giving him food. Mercy is seeing a person begging for love and giving him love. Mercy is seeing someone lonely and giving him, giving him company. Mercy is meeting the need, not just feeling it. That's mercy. And Jeremiah wanted his people and for us to know that God is merciful. He wanted us to remember that God has mercy for us, that there are no mercy blockers with him, that his mercies never stop. In fact, they never end. You can write that one down. Remember that God's mercy never ends. They are new every morning. Pastor Paul David Tripp said, one of the stunning realities of the Christian life is that in a world where everything is in some state of decay, God's mercies never grow old. They never run out. They never are ill-timed. They never dry up. They never grow weak. They never get weary. They never fail to meet the need. They never disappoint. They never, ever fail because they really are new every morning. You know, I have experienced God's mercy over and over and over and over in my life, even this week. The fact that I am cancer-free is a result of God's mercy. The fact that I don't have heart disease is a result of God's mercy. The fact that I failed in a restaurant business and I didn't lose my home and I didn't have to file for bankruptcy is a result of God's mercy. The fact that I'm even a pastor is an act of divine mercy because I am unworthy to hold this position. The fact that I haven't single-handedly killed this church that God has given me to steward is an act of divine mercy. The fact that I didn't and I haven't collapsed in a heap of burnout and anxiety through the years is an act of divine mercy. God's mercy never stops. They are new every morning. And why did Jeremiah say that his mercies are new every morning? It's not because yesterday's mercies are old and worn out. I think it was Pastor John Piper who said that yesterday's mercies were for yesterday's troubles. 
Today's mercies are for today's troubles. Like manna in the, in the wilderness, God's mercies are new every single morning. Let me ask you something. How has God shown you his mercy? Has he been merciful to you during this pandemic? If so, how? Why don't you take some time today or tomorrow and write down some of the ways that God has shown you his mercy and then thank him for his mercies. You know, in one of his messages, Pastor David Jeremiah told the story of a young man who lived in Chicago and he met a pretty young lady in Kentucky and they got married. And they enjoyed three wonderful years of marriage and living in Chicago. And then one day his bride fell ill uh, to a mental illness. She began to suffer from a severe type of mental illness. And over time, her condition deteriorated. And one day, her doctor suggested that maybe the man take his wife back to Kentucky to live in the home where parents were still there, live in the home where she grew up in. And so in the hope that maybe a familiar surrounding would help to restore her mental health. And so he moved back to her old home in Kentucky, but nothing changed. It was still the same. Feeling dejected and defeated, the young man uh, put his wife back in the car and they went back to Chicago. And as they neared the city, the man looked over at his wife and she was sound asleep. For the, very, for the first time in weeks, she was actually sleeping very peacefully. When they got home, he still asleep, so he quietly opened the door, picked her up, carried her into the house, placed her in her bed, and then he sat next to her, kept an, kept an eye on her all night long until the first rays of the sun uh, reached through the curtain and touched her face. The young woman awoke. She looked up and she saw her young husband seated next to her, and she said, I seem to have been on a long journey. Where have you been? The young man, speaking out of days and weeks and months of patient, patient waiting and watching, said, Sweetheart, I have been here waiting for you all along the whole time. Such is the faithfulness of a devoted husband, and such is the picture of a faithful God. The last thing that Jeremiah wanted everyone to remember is that God is faithful. Take a look at Lamentations 3, verse 23. He said there, His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. God's faithfulness is great. God's faithfulness is great. God's faithfulness means that He does what He says He will do. Every single time, He will do what He says He will do. And I like the way Pastor Charles Stanley described it. He said, He won't change His mind about our salvation. We have the assurance of eternal security. Since He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, we never have to fear that our world is out of control. His plans were formed long ago with per perfect faithfulness and no one can frustrate them or turn back his hand. Because God is faithful, we can have peace of mind in any circumstance, even in the face of death. Although we will change with time and seasons of life will come and go, our faithful God is always the same. Since we belong to him through Christ, he will never forget, neglect, or abandon us. He has promised to preserve us, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will do it.
he will do it. Such is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to you, and he always will be. I'm so glad that in 586 B.C., Jeremiah had the spiritual eyes of a lion. And when all hell was breaking loose around him, he saw things differently. He saw the the love and the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Here in 2020, 2020 A.D., I hope you too will have the spiritual eyes of a lion so that even in the darkness we're living in, you'll see what others may miss, that God never stops loving you, that God's mercies never end, and that God's faithfulness is truly great. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, what a great and encouraging word from Jeremiah today. Father, in the midst of horrific calamity, a two and a half year siege, and then the city is completely destroyed and broken down, and then the people are taken captive for decades more. How good it is to know that Jeremiah saw things with the spiritual eyes of a lion. And he saw what others couldn't see, that God, you never stop loving your people, that even when bad things are happening, your mercies never end, and that your, your faithfulness is great. Father, thank you for that message. Thank you for this passage. And Father, in our dark times, whatever they may be, no matter what it is we're going through, Help us to remember what the Jews went through. Help us to remember the siege and the invasion of their city and the destruction of their temple and their own captivity. And help us to remember who you are. Help us never to forget. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your constant mercies. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, help us during these times to keep our eyes focused on you. Help us to see things like a lion. And we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.